Not the intro I expected, but I'll mad lib. Let's go with it. Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and today I want to talk about symbols. Now, symbols are funny things. They are these cultural icons that represent something abstract, right? Images or objects that we've mutually agreed upon to invest with some larger meaning. And fascinatingly, symbols are everywhere. And yet, at the same time, we hardly ever consciously acknowledge them over the course of our daily lives. So much so that they have the power to, with just a glance, impact us, to incite action or communicate values, even when we don't realize it. Got a couple examples. First, first, there we go, the stoplight, right? In our culture, you see this while you're driving without thinking it incites an action, which is what? Red means what? Green means what? Go! I've been teaching that to my daughter lately. It's so much fun, but it also communicates a cultural value, mutual respect and safety. At least for most of us, it communicates that. This is Florida. There's a lot of red light runners. If it's you, shame on you. Another one. What comes to mind when you see this? Pirates. I knew someone was going to say that. Maybe pirates. Maybe pirates. But for most, it's a warning, correct? And it incites action. Do not eat, do not touch whatever is holding this mark. And it also communicates a concept like poison, danger, death, correct? You tracking with me on this? This is the power of symbols. However, I'm actually most intrigued by cultural symbols that change in what they communicate, evolving with their surrounding culture over time to the point that they are assumed by us, and yet at the same time we actually forget what they originally meant and why. For example, what comes to mind when you see this? Peace. The abstract concept of peace, which most of us probably can't define if we're actually pressed to. But who can explain what the peace sign originally meant? Why does it look the way it does? Anybody? No idea. You see, this is fascinating. This was designed for the British campaign for nuclear disarmament in 1958. The vertical line represents the flag signal for the letter D. And the two signs going either way, those two lines represent the letter, for the, or the letter N. D and N, nuclear disarmament. And what it was actually supposed to have you imagine is that all together it's a human being with his hands to either side, questioning the insanity of it all, ultimately set despairingly in an empty white backdrop that was supposed to be our Earth at the end of a nuclear war. It does mean peace, but a very specific kind of peace, as well as a warning against what will happen to us if we rejected nuclear war. One more. Who knows this poster? Come on, someone has to. Rosie the Riveteer and her motto, we can do it. This symbol is fascinating because it's actually undergone multiple shifts in its meaning over the years. For some, it represents the national recruitment effort to get women into male-dominated industries during World War II. 
For others, it is actually a larger symbol of the broader feminist movement and the fight for equal rights for women. But here's the thing, neither is what the symbol was originally created to mean. The original poster was posted inside the factories of a specific company, the Westinghouse Company, not to recruit new workers, but to motivate its current workforce, comprised of both male and female workers trying to get them to work harder. It's just a motivation poster. And it wasn't until the 1980s that it was actually rediscovered and associated with the broader feminist movement. Now, there's nothing bad about any of these meanings that these symbols have appropriated or come to kind of embody. But I bring this up because it highlights the fluidity of our symbols, how their meaning can become assumed by their culture, leading to that original what and why that they held to become unclear or even changed over time. But do you know what I think is the best example of this right now in modern day America? I think it's the cross. You see, that might sound heretical when you hear me say that, but I want you to actually think about what the cross is. It was the most agonizing and humiliating tool of execution for the Roman Empire, reserved for rebels as a public spectacle of shame, intimidation, and terror. It was the symbol of imperial Roman power and state-sponsored murder. Now, I want you to imagine you're out walking around Tallahassee and you see someone today with a tiny electric chair dangling from a necklace around their neck. You would find that odd, would you not? That would be quite strange, and yet that's what we do when we wear the cross. We see the cross everywhere, and we don't even blink. Because as a symbol, it's taken for granted. Prevalence has made us just kind of assume we know what it means. And yet, if you ask people what it means, you'd get a million different answers. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because we believe that as a symbol, it represents the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, which we also believe changed everything, personally and on a cosmic level. Its meaning should go beyond any simple, singular explanation. But at the same time, its prevalence also means that it is perpetually at risk of becoming merely assumed by us, turned into another ever-present, harmless cultural symbol that we see everywhere, but has no impact on our lives. Thus, as Christians, we must regularly take time to assess and wrestle with what this all-meaningful symbol is about. We must make sure that we are ensuring that it transcends the level of assumption and impacts how we exist in this world in the midst of our daily lives. And it's that wrestling that's gonna set the course for our new series at E3, Atonement. Together, as we head towards Easter and Holy Week, we are gonna take four weeks to sit with the cross, each week using a different perspective from church history to explore what this symbol is all about. What does it mean for us, God, others, our world, how we live our lives? And this morning, we begin with my personal favorite theory. It's a theory of the cross grounded in the central claim of the gospels, that somehow the cross is the ultimate victory of God in his story. To which you might ask, Pastor Mike, victory over what? 
And secondly, how did the execution of a poor first century Jewish rabbi achieve such a thing? Who wants to ask that question? Anybody? Oh, no, get out of here. Future week. To answer that question, we need to begin at the beginning. We're going to have to start with the first pages of the Bible, with the creation accounts of Genesis, where God creates our universe, all things, in this perfect state of peace and wholeness. Everything lives in right relationship with each other, and nothing takes life to survive. During which, God creates humanity uniquely in his image, placing us in the garden called Eden to live as co-creators alongside him. These unique beings that in relationship with him work to draw more life out of creation's raw potential as they live according to his ways. However, turn on the news and you'll recognize pretty quickly, are we in Eden anymore? No, we are not. And that's because God gifted humanity with the ability to choose how we will live. The dignity of free will, represented by these two symbolic trees in Eden. First, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which humanity is told never to eat from or they will die, symbolizing this fundamental, ultimate question at the beginning of the Bible. Will humanity trust God and his definition of good and evil as they operate within his good world? And then the second tree, is this tree called the tree of life, which symbolizes humanity's God-given source of life, as well as implicitly the natural consequence embedded within free will. This reminder that to choose to reject their creator inherently means turning away from this tree, turning away from life to embrace death. Pop quiz. How does humanity do? Pass or fail? Fail. In Genesis 3, a serpent, the symbol of pure evil and rebellion against God, tempts humanity, whispering in their ear, God's not trustworthy. He's holding out on you. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil won't bring death. No, it will actually make you into God's yourselves. Evil introduces humanity to its central temptation. Two, in distrust, pride, and thirst for power, wrestle from God what is his alone, the right to define good and evil and then warp it around what benefits me. Humanity eats from the tree and everything shatters in the Genesis account. It spirals out. It's a gut-wrenching scene. But for today, I actually want to explore what comes right after this fall. You see, in response, God recites these poems. One depicts the natural consequence of evil. God honors humanity's choice to reject life, and we are exiled from the tree of life, exiled from the Garden of Eden into a world touched by decay and death. But in the second poem that I really want to focus on, God immediately turns to the serpent, to evil itself, and declares this. We read in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, this is profound. What we see here is that God's immediate response to humanity's rebellion is to promise that one day he will reverse evil's victory through the descendant of Eve, 
this human one who, despite being wounded by evil, will somehow reverse that and defeat it. God promises to rescue his good world from evil and its consequences through a wounded victor. And this promise becomes the central mystery of the scriptures. As we watch humanity's rebellion spread outward, individually, and eventually corporately, humans form entire nations around these kings who, in distrust, pride, and the thirst for power, shape good and evil around their purposes, their wills, justifying greed, objectification, oppression, and violence, so long as it achieves their goals. Has anyone seen that in the world? Even Israel, God's own people, falls into this temptation of evil, leading to the exile as the Old Testament ends. All to say that this promise loomed in the first century of the New Testament, where once again Israel found itself conquered by the latest evil human empire, Rome, longing for God's promised victory to finally come. And into that story, that promise, that longing, walked a Galilean named Jesus, a descendant of Eve who was also God. And he immediately starts confronting evil in these small skirmishes of his ministry, in his testing, in his healings, in his teachings. Every single one pushes up against evil and its consequences, all building to the most unexpected thing not to a holy war against the evil Roman Empire, not with some epic sword fight with evil's champions like Gungard, right? No, 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 no. It all builds to that, the cross. The New Testament upholds that somehow this cross was where God's Genesis 3 victory was won. And y'all, that should sound crazy to you. God's king was expected to defeat the evil Roman Empire, not get crucified by it. A dead Messiah is a failed Messiah in the first century Jewish worldview. Crucifixion was the tool of evil for the evil empire of Jesus' day. How on earth does dying on it defeat evil? It would be like if Indiana Jones was like, I have a great idea to defeat the Nazis. I'm going to get shot by them. It's bonkers. That should sound loony. And yet that's precisely the claim of the Gospels. It's fascinating. When you go and look at the synoptics in particular, they depict this moment of crucifixion, this horrifying act of evil as a victorious coronation. It follows the same steps of the enthronement of a new Caesar in the first century though it's a very different kind of king. Just think about the story. A crown is placed on Jesus' head of thorns, not of gold. A purple robe of royalty is draped over his shoulders in mockery, not in worldly power. And he's paraded through his city, which in a Roman procession would end with the Caesar taking up his throne over his empire. But what throne is Jesus paraded to? a Roman cross. These early Christians were convinced that Jesus' crucifixion wasn't defeat, but actually it was somehow the enthronement of God's victorious king. 
And again, we ask, but how? And y'all, this is where I get to preach. God's battle was never against just Rome. It was always about dealing with what's underneath every evil, silly empire in our broken history. It was always about curing the disease, not the symptoms of what's gone wrong. It was always about defeating evil itself, that original temptation to elevate ourselves to godhood, to warp good and evil around our purposes, regardless of the consequence of God's good world. In the biblical worldview, evil isn't a person. It's a virus that has one goal to spread by tempting human beings into embracing its tools, grabbing for that forbidden fruit and becoming it in the process. And its greatest weapon in that pursuit has always been death. Think about it. Fundamentally, to impose our will onto another, we will have to wield the threat of death eventually. To become willing to destroy our opposition whom we have determined to be evil, while believing that doing so is actually good in the process. I mean, just look at human history. The threat of death is evil's most effective tool in convincing humans to surrender their integrity and become it, is it not? In fear of death, we become willing to do just about anything, to use just about any means to avoid it, do we not? And what's terrifying, it's how easily that temptation convinces us that using evil's tools is actually good when we're fighting against who or what we have determined to be evil. It's evil's greatest lie that we can use evil's weapons to oppose it without becoming our evil ourselves in doing so. In such moments, what the Bible tells us is that we are tricked once again, into claiming that right to redefine good and evil, into believing that we're setting God's world right while participating in the very rebellion that broke it in the first place. Falling for that original temptation, distrust God, eat the fruit, use evil's tools, that's okay, become God in the process. It's insidious. If you don't believe me, just think about it like this. Let's say... This piece of wood is something I have determined to be my enemy. And it gives me a splinter. It hurts me. So what do I do? I grab for that fruit. I determine to make sure that it will never hurt me again. I determine that goodness means making sure it can never hurt anyone again. So I use my gift of free will to shape myself into an ax. I pick up those tools of power, violence, and death, and I retaliate, and I escalate, and I obliterate, and I destroy. All the while telling myself that this is good. And y'all, it feels so good, doesn't it? It feels so effective. I mean, just look at the damage I've done to what I have determined to be enemy. I seemingly don't have a mark on me. God must be with me. Yet what Jesus tells us is that in that moment, evil has won. Because with every blow, this blade, whether we see it or not, dulls and it chips away. And with enough blows, it isn't there anymore. It gets completely 
doled and worn away. That's the cost of evil's tools. The devastation of others and the slow wearing away of our souls, our humanity. It is a delusion to think that we can participate in evil and not lose something in the process. We feel like we're achieving victory over evil, but in reality, we've just become it and produced more of what it's always produced since the beginning of the Bible, death, death, death. Y'all, again, this is human history, is it not? Evil convincing us to wield death, our victims wielding it in return, a never-ending spiral downward. And that's what God confronts on that cross. Jesus, the son of God, the human who never gave into evil's temptation, takes its consequences into himself. He lets evil do its worst. On that Roman cross, evil used every weapon it had to tempt Jesus into eating from that forbidden tree, from turning from God's wills, from picking up its tools. It used terror, violence, torture, humiliation, even its greatest weapon of death. And despite it all, Jesus refused to play its game. He trusted God. And on the other side of what evil thought was victory proved it utterly defeated. The snake delivered its fatal blow, thinking that it had won only to find its head crushed by an empty tomb. The resurrection, Jesus proved definitively that evil and death are impotent before the power and the self-sacrificial love of our God. And for the early church, that victory changed everything. It's how Paul can write in 1 Corinthians, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's how the author of Hebrews can declare that on the cross, Jesus broke the power of evil and freed us from the fear of death that has shattered our world. Through Christ crucified, we are invited into God's victory over evil and through that into the victory and the freedom from fearing death, from that temptation of evil that has broken God's good world. There is nothing evil can do to us to make us surrender our integrity anymore. We can refuse to play its game. We can look it in the eyes and say, you have no power over me because you had no power over God's son, my king. If Jesus is my Lord, simply put, his death and resurrection become my own, And I have to accept that his kingdom, which holds my total allegiance, is defined by this symbol, not the tools of evil that are so tempting. It is defined by victorious grace, mercy, non-retaliation. It is defined by a king who ascended not to prideful worldly power like every human king has done in our history, but to a cross where he declared victoriously that evil would not get the last word on God's good world. Can I get an amen? And that should transform how we live in this world right now. That victory should free us to become the Eden human beings we were created to be. The entire history of our world, humans have gone their own way. They have tried to get ours. And we can become a human right in the midst of this entire messed up place that is defined by self-sacrifice, not selfish power and oppression. Defined by forgiveness, not retaliation. Defined by love, not hate. Life, not death. That's who we are called to be. 
in a broken world. So what does this symbol mean for us? Well, let me ask you, do we live as if the cross is what victory actually looks like? The cross, though a free gift, demands that we live amongst these human kingdoms of this world with a different vision of good, evil, power, and above all, what tools are acceptable for us to use. If I believe that victory was achieved not through the Roman army, but through the self-sacrificial love of God nailed to a cross, then I no longer get to choose evil's tools in this world, regardless of what other people do. My king brought peace and justice in a totally upside-down, scandalous way in the eyes of the powers of this world, and he insists that we cannot defeat evil with evil, that only God's love can do that. Thus, as we're confronted by the tragedy, the conflict, the brokenness, and the death of this world, as we watch the nation's rage, what is fundamentally happening in every one of those moments is that we are confronted with a repeated choice. Will we reach for the fruit, warp good and evil around what benefits us, use evil's tools, perpetuate what has broken God's world, or will we look to the cross and say, that's how victory is won? And if we're bold enough to claim such a symbol, we make sure that it's evident in our engagement of politics and how we talk to those we deem enemies and how we do business in the kingdoms of this world. Will it be evident in our willingness to recognize our complicity in systems of evil and injustice and our willingness to confront them in a Christ-like way? Will it be evident in who we give our allegiance to what lines in the sand we draw and how we stand firm to non-retaliation, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. Do our actions in this world reflect the enthronement of a crucified king or the power of just another Caesar? And how about our personal relationships? Will the victorious cross shape how we respond when someone else uses evil tools against us, when they lie to us, when they gossip about us, when they hurt and betray us, will we retaliate and escalate and continue that spiral downward? Or will we turn the other cheek and forgive like our king called us to? Will we strive for power thinking that that's how we'll make this world right? Will we seek to win arguments or become humble peacemakers? with a very different ethic and a very different kingdom? Does the cross define how we respond when we realize we've given into evil's tools ourselves? Those moments, and you all, I'm your pastor, we all have them. Those moments when we know that choice will cause hurt and we do it anyway, convincing ourselves that it was actually good in the process. In such moments, when our spouse, family, friend, neighbor, even our enemy, when they correctly call us out, when they say, you have hurt me. In such moments, rather than living in denial or shame, will we look instead to the cross and remember that we can own that failure in light of grace and let Christ's victory over evil and death produce healthy repentance and growth moving forward. 
and in doing so proclaim the victory of God through our lives in a world wracked by evil that desperately needs some good news and a new story about how victory is won. Amen? Mm. Amen. I invite you guys to reflect on those questions as we worship together.